morning and welcome to Rising. We've got a great show today, Robbie. Am I right? With uh, with no on-screen violence. We'll see. At the Oscars we'll last night. We'll well, well, no promises. No promises. <laughs> Apparently, there was a slap fight at the Oscars last night that did not involve David Sirota. <laughs> Yeah. I saw Thank the news. Goodness. I'm like, oh no, David. I'm like, oh, David. Okay. It was it was Will Smith. No, it okay. was uh, yeah, it was Will Smith. It was pretty crazy. Uh, catching up on it all this morning on Twitter, everybody having wild takes, trying what, to what slot. Are the, yeah. What Chris, are the takes? How are the how are the politics sorting out in the it's take world? Pretty crazy. I'm I'm seeing like a lot of sort of lefty Twitter people being like, because Will Smith was defending the honor of a black woman, it was like okay. And also conservative people who are like, yeah, he should stand up for his wife. But also they don't like Will Smith because, I don't know, some they have had marital problems and I think have had like an open don't like marriage. Will Smith. I think they've had an open marriage or something like that. It's not family value. I don't know. I don't, that's what I hear. You, know, but you can't just like him or dislike him based on whether you like the movies he's in. Obviously, you have to find some deeper meaning in everything <laughs> right. he says and does. So. And for the, right, for the three people watching this who somehow missed what happened... Chris Rock told a joke. Told a about joke about his wife and her hair loss through yeah, Jada Alicia. Pinkett, right? right. And uh, Will Smith just marched onto onto the stage and slapped him across the face, a powerful slap. Uh, y- yeah. You don't you don't want to get beaten by Will Smith, right. uh, let alone on television in front of whoever's watching. To me, the most well, I th- I, th- I mean, I think the I- the idea that you could that you would set this precedent that it's okay to do this is dangerous to comedians across the country. Absolutely. Like, so now somebody's getting heckled in the audience, and, and the whole point is like yeah. heckling in the back and forth, and you insult people, and they get insulted, and you pay to be insulted by the comedian. It's not okay to then walk on the stage and slap the Oh, 100%. Yeah, I'm, I'm very clearly, unambiguously in that, no, it was not okay for him to get up and do that. Look, it's maybe it was not a great joke. It was a tasteless joke, but the Oscars are full of tasteless jokes. Jokes I don't think are funny. They're rich celebrity people. They can take it. Like, they have yeah. good lives, and so, so no. No yeah. violence, please. I also thought his statement that he made when he went up on stage and sort of apologized was almost worse. Mm-hmm. Because he, 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 if, if you've ever listened to somebody who's, been, who's, who's carried out some act of domestic violence, what they will 99% of the time say is that it was love that made them do it. <laughs> It's, that's like the line from domestic abusers. Mm-hmm. They had, they, they're, they're, they're ashamed of what love made them do. Right. They, just, they just feel too deeply. And that's exactly what he said up there. Well, some people think he did it as part of a deliberate, a deliberate government plot to distract us from what's going on in Ukraine. And I guess that worked. Agent Smith. We, we start, Agent Smith. We started the show talking about it instead of what we're actually supposed to talk about. So later today, Team Rising will weigh in on Biden's approval ratings, the administration's handling of inflation, and Bacha Ungar Sargon will break down Hunter Biden's latest laptop scandal, which also has a neat little Ukrainian biolabs twist in it. Plus, Caitlin Burns and Natalie Dalzicki will discuss Ron DeSantis' refusal to acknowledge Leah Thomas as the women's NCAA champion in freestyle. Speaking of distractions. Speaking of distractions. <laughs> now we're going to get into Ukraine. So President Biden took a trip to Poland and he declared that Putin, quote, cannot remain in power. And that was during his final day in Europe in a speech. Let's watch. A dictator bent on rebuilding an empire will never erase a people's love for liberty. Brutality will never grind down their will to be free. Ukraine will never be a victory for Russia, for free people refused to live in a world of hopelessness and darkness. 
we will have a different future, a brighter future, rooted in democracy and principle, hope and light, of decency and dignity, of freedom and possibilities. For God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. Former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard responded to Biden's speech saying, quote, here we go again, another regime change war. The target, nuclear-armed Russia. Re regime change is the true intent of Biden admin's policies, which will have catastrophic consequences for Americans and the world. Meanwhile, Glenn Greenwald blasted Biden's words as reckless and said unintended escalation from miscommunication and misperception could be just as bad as deliberate war. However, Secretary of State Antony Blinken told reporters that the U.S. has no plans for regime change in Russia and added that the U.S. is providing all the humanitarian support we can to reinforce NATO. So I, I mean, I agree with the critics. Why say that? That is not our explicit goal. And look, I, I've said this before in discussion with you and with Kim. We, Kim and I have some disagreements on this. I think if regime change happens as a result of this war, okay, that would be one thing. Is it is it a explicit goal we talk about? No, because that will not help shorten the war. And the goal is to end the war as quickly as possible. And I don't see, you know, what the what the benefit of using that language is for the U.S. And then it's clear it, it, that was not part of a deliberate strategy. It's just mm -hmm. something he said. It was not prepared. It's not the State Department's standpoint. So then it was so it was sloppy and wrong. Right. And it's and it's another piece of evidence for why war needs to be avoided at all costs. Because when you get into wars, you create opportunities for mistakes like this and, and for kind of belligerently driven mistakes. It's not just, it's not just a, an accident that he said this. Like it, it, come, right. it comes from a certain well of, of kind of hubris that the United States has had for decades. But when you layer that on top of an already active war, then you, you risk just spiraling this right. that much further out of control. And for what? Like, we're pretending as if it, you replace Vladimir Putin with some, like, liberal reformer that you'd have. You, Vladimir Putin is the result of the structural kind right. of politics of Russia, which we created deliberately after the, after the Cold War. And so if, if he goes... You're going to have the structure create some other type of Vladimir Putin in his place. I, mean, I think now, that's it's, probable. It's not. It's not a guarantee. I, I, I structural changes are important. I believe, but I am a believer in sort of the great man theory and that you know, indiv unique individuals shape the trajectory of history. Things are not predestined to be. You could have some different figure yeah. in there who is less bad than Putin. You could have someone who's more worse than Putin. You could have someone who's more incompetent, and the whole. Kind of thing falls right. apart. Right. This is a case where, if in late February, Putin himself had decided not to invade, right. the invasion doesn't happen. Right. So it is kind of a great man moment in that particular right. sense. You, you have all of the different structures that led to that place, yeah. but you were in a situation where one man had agency and could decide right. whether or not he was going to launch this invasion or not. Now he already did. So you know, what the agency of the next right. Russian president is remains. But I, I don't think we should pursue regime change whatsoever. Right. We just, I'm going to shrug my shoulders if it happens as a result of this. It'll be Putin getting what he deserves for this really awful thing. Right. And there is, right. And so that now the question is, is this actually U.S. policy? Right. And I, there's, there's I no evidence not. other than Biden being belligerent. But creating that, that wanna, ambiguity is really 
yeah. unnecessary and stupid right. if we're not even if it's not even policy why say it right it, and the reason to say it would be that you don't actually want this war to end right that you right. love bleeding Russia dry and that which is this exactly what calling him critics. a war criminal you know the, that it all makes it more difficult to get to a right. negotiated settlement well, President Zelensky is looking for peace without delay when negotiations resume with Russian officials in Turkey this week. He ruled out giving up Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity. Zelensky also said over the weekend that Ukraine may adopt a neutral status in the negotiations, according to Reuters. These revelations come after Zelensky's criticism of NATO at the end of last week, saying that the alliance hasn't actually proved that it can save people, and he urged NATO to go further to prove it is a truly powerful defense alliance around the world. Now, French President Macron has called for a de-escalation of words and actions in dealing with the Ukraine conflict, specifically pointing to Biden's earlier remarks, quote, well, I wouldn't use this type of wording because I continue to hold discussions with President Putin, Macron told the French media. Right, exactly. Right. That's, that's exactly it. Yes, yeah. don't use that language. <laughs> right, because then the negotiations uh, become that much more difficult. And so Zelensky has said, and he, he right. gave an interview with uh, Russian, kind of, uh, Russian media, and, and Putin warned Russian media, if you publish this interview of his, you know, you're, you're breaking the law because he's banning all of the non, you know, state-backed media outlets. But we learned what the interview said anyway. And he said that he's fine with Ukraine becoming a neutral country, which was one of the demands of, of Russia. And he said he's, he's, he's willing to negotiate the status of these breakaway regions. Uh, what, what, what that means, you know, would need to be... Sure sorted out. And he didn't even mention Crimea, which suggests that Crimea is, he understands that he's lost, Ukraine lost de facto control of Crimea like seven years ago right. and is not going to get it back. Right. And that would be something that could probably be thrown into the negotiations. So the outlines are there. If Putin's serious that his aims were the neutralizing and demilitarizing Ukraine, uh, the, sorting out the Donbass and, and Crimea, then Zelensky is putting that on the table. But, but the question now is, are those actually Putin's aims or not? Or are they grander? Yeah, that's what we're going to have to find out. All right. Meanwhile, Yemen's Houthi leadership, after bombing, uh, Robbie, a oil field in Saudi Arabia, offered a three-day ceasefire and said that they're ready to end this war. And it feels like, why not? Like Saudi Arabia at this point is, you know, they are themselves seven years into this war. And it's becoming more and more humiliating for them, which it might be the only thing that is going to prevent them from ending it at this point. Because they don't want to be the, the shame of losing, right. but the shame of continuing is something as well. Right, because the, the Houthis are showing real capacity at this point. <laughs> it's, it's hard. <laughs> Nations, nation states think, oh, I got my big, powerful military and yes. I can just kill people and boss them around. Doesn't work. It turns out they can shoot back too people sometimes. People shoot back and mm. you just get bogged down in these conflicts that help no one that just cause people to die yeah better than not start wars yeah wars are bad yeah. we're, we're still uh learning that over and over again um humans have been learning that for thousands of years but uh hasn't quite sunk in yet yeah it's it and it's the parallels you know they, they both started roughly around the same time these conflicts though the the u.s backed saudi war in yemen was has been simmering and, and has been a hot war the entire time, whereas the Ukraine-Russia conflict, right. hot in Donbass, but then exploded onto the world stage. Right, took us all by surprise a little bit. Yeah. yeah. All right, well, we'll tell you what's on our radars up next.
Ryan, what's on your radar? Well, in the months leading up to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, President Putin regularly insisted that the training exercise, the 100,000-plus troops along the Ukrainian border, was nothing to be alarmed about. The U.S. intelligence community regularly insisted the opposite, with Ukraine President Zelensky saying that the U.S. was overhyping the Russian threat and inflaming the situation. The U.S. went as far as to put a precise date on when they thought the invasion would happen. And the day before, Russia announced it was withdrawing its troops from the border, and it seemed that perhaps the standoff was over. But the U.S. responded by saying that Russia's announcement was empty and that it hadn't actually removed any troops, and they stuck by their prediction that Russia would invade. Unfortunately, they were right. A month later, Russia again made a major announcement. They now say that their, quote, demilitarization and denazification of Ukraine is nearly complete, and they will now focus on solidifying their gains in Donbass, site of the separatist war that's been raging since 2014. The question now is whether Russia is accurately forecasting its moves. Some have said that controlling the Donbass and degrading Ukraine's military capacity has always been the limited goal of the invasion. The U.S., meanwhile, is saying they don't believe Russia's claim and say they're regrouping for another assault on Kyiv. Now, credit where it's due. The U.S. intelligence of Russia's aims before the war turned out correct. In fact, the U.S. had so much knowledge of Putin's intentions that it raises the question of why we didn't make a stronger diplomatic push to head it off, knowing how much death and suffering would result. Perhaps there was no way to stop it, but there's no indication that we really tried other than by threatening sanctions. Still, the intelligence was correct then, and Russian communication lines are now hugely exposed to interception because their encrypted lines don't reach to the front. That's how we know that so many Russian generals have been killed, for instance. The U.S. and Ukrainians are able to thoroughly monitor their calls. So if the U.S. is saying that they have intel that says Russia isn't serious about focusing just on Donbass, given their recent record, we should probably at least take that claim seriously. And we should also be asking what the U.S. is doing to push this toward a negotiated peace before there's nothing left to negotiate over. Now, yesterday, Zelensky told Russian journalists his country is willing to accept neutrality and negotiate over the political configuration of the Donbass. So as we consider this offer, it's important to correctly assess Putin's aims. If it's only the Donbass, there's less of a chance that spirals into a world war. But if the aims are broader, that risk increases, and we already have Biden saying this. For God's sake, this man cannot remain power. Now, the White House has walked that back, but it's a hint at how much risk there is of escalation. Another hint was accidentally published in Russian state-backed newspapers. It's worth taking a look at that, too. So in the news business, we often have stories that are pre-written in preparation for an outcome that we expect to happen. They're called pre-writes, and once in a while, an editor accidentally hits publish on them before they're ready. In Russia, an important pre-write briefly went public before being taken down. It was published by not just one, but multiple state-run outlets, including Sputnik and Skazal. So it's something that, at a minimum, was considered acceptable to the Russian state leadership. So most Western and Ukrainian commentators have argued that Putin expected the Ukrainian government, with a reputation for sclerotic kleptocracy, to collapse just like the Afghan government did. So on February 27th, just three days into the invasion, an article announcing that fact was published by the state-run press. So if it's really true that Putin didn't have the aim of fully subjugating Ukraine and bringing it back into the fold of a greater Russia, we do have to ask why the Russian state-run media accidentally published an article celebrating having done so.
So now the White House has walked that back, but it's a hint at how much risk there is of escalation. Another hint was accidentally published in Russian state-backed newspapers, and it's worth taking a look at that too. So in the news business, we have, we have stories that are pre-written in preparation for an outcome that we expect to happen. They're called pre-writes, and once in a while, an editor accidentally hits publish on them before they're ready to go. Now in Russia, an important pre-write briefly went public before being taken down. It was published by not just one, but multiple state-run outlets, including Sputnik and Skazal. So it's something that, at a minimum, was considered acceptable to the Russian state leadership. Now, most Western and Ukrainian commentators have argued that Putin expected their Ukrainian government, with a reputation for sclerotic kleptocracy, to collapse just like the Afghan government did. And so on February 27th, just three days into the invasion, an article announcing that fact was published by the state-run press. And I'll read from it. Vladimir Putin has assumed, the article writes, without a drop of exaggeration, a historic responsibility by deciding not to leave the solution of the Ukrainian question to future generations. After all, the need to solve it would always remain the main problem for Russia for two key reasons. And the issue of national security, that is, the creation of anti-Russia from Ukraine and an outpost for the West to put pressure on us, is only the second most important among them. So in other words, NATO is only the second most important. The first would always be the complex of a divided people, the complex of national humiliation. When the Russian house first lost part of its foundation, Kyiv, and then was forced to come to terms with the existence of two states, not one, but two peoples. That is, either to abandon their history, agreeing with the insane versions that, quote, only Ukraine is the real Russia, unquote, or to gnash one's teeth helplessly, remembering the times when, quote, we lost Ukraine. Returning Ukraine, that is, turning it back to Russia, would be more and more difficult with every decade, recoding de-Russification of, de-Russification of Russians and inciting Ukrainian little Russians against Russians would gain momentum. Now this problem is gone. Ukraine has returned to Russia. This does not mean that its statehood will be liquidated, but it will be recognized, reestablished, and returned to its natural state of part of the Russian world. Okay, so... So if it's really true that Putin didn't have the aim of fully subjugating Ukraine and bringing it back into the fold of a greater Russia, we do have to ask why the Russian state-run media accidentally published an article celebrating having done so. Yeah, I mean, that's what I think it was. It it, it makes the most sense, and it is a reasonable... uh, Because I don't think Putin is either... Uh, uniquely foolish, the madman, crazy. You hear all this. He's insane. He's just, you know, doing something crazy. He wants to end the world. No, that doesn't make sense. Political leaders are are generally smart and comp, especially ones that right. stay in power as long as he has. Nor does it make sense that he's brilliant and Machiavellian and so much more strategic and and forward and far thinking than our own leaders or anyone else. That doesn't actually make sense either. It makes more sense that he's generally competent and made some assumptions about how this would go that did not quite turn out the way our own leaders did when we have invaded other countries. That makes the most sense. He thought the Zelensky government would just collapse, and then he could either— He had a 20% approval rating. Right, right. right. And then he he could—and if he was not going to take the whole country, it would be easier to negotiate with whatever, you know, puppet government, puppet Russian government arose in its place, and he could have the territories he wanted— that makes sense to me, and that's what they printed, as right. you pointed out. Yes. So right. that's probably what it was. Right, and so understanding that, 
doesn't mean that it only means that you understand the material conditions of the world that we're living in better, and then you can operate from there. Right. And so if you understand that that, that may be a goal, that when, then when Putin says, actually, no, 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 I, I only am looking at the Donbass here, right. what it says is, do everything you can to get a deal now, right. because that actually isn't what he wants. So if you can get him out of there with a, with, a, with a small amount of concessions and end this war before Biden's bumbling mouth leads us into World War III, then do that. Because otherwise, he has broader aims here, which could be extremely dangerous for the world and for Ukraine. Like he, he is willing, I think, to just flatten the whole thing. And so if you can get, if you can end this now. And end he might it. have new aims. He might have reset his aims to something more modest based on how this has gone. Right. That is also in keeping with him being a general, a generally right. strategic, sane, rational leader who wants to stay in power and wants to get something out of this. He may not be getting everything he wanted. So let's fi- see if there's a compromise and let's, let's end it right. before World War III, oh. preferably. That'd preferably. Good. That'd be a good thing. Yeah. Anyway, looking forward to what's on your radar up next. Robbie, what's on your radar? So even Vladimir Putin, who is currently waging an unjust war of aggression against Ukraine, even Putin finds himself distracted by the culture war, or so it seems. In a televised speech on Friday, the authoritarian Russian president criticized the West for engaging in cancel culture against the Russian people. They are trying to cancel our country, he said. I'm talking about the progressive discrimination of everything to do with Russia. This trend that's unfolding in a number of Western states with the full neglect and sometimes encouragement of Western cultures, they are now engaging in cancel culture, even removing Tchaikovsky, which is something I talked about in a radar last week. Putin also criticized the West treatment of Harry Potter author J.K. Rowling, whose high-profile disputes with transgender activists have earned her condemnation for many liberals, progressives, media figures, and so on. Even the broader Harry Potter fandom, actually. Warner Brothers has appeared to distance itself from J.K. Rowling, declining to include the franchise's creator in the recent 20th anniversary HBO special. So Putin weighed in. Take a listen. They canceled John Rowling recently, the child, the children's author. Her books are published all over the world, even just because she didn't satisfy the demands of gender rights. So, look, it's odd. I think it's odd to listen to Putin fretting about a fabulously wealthy author of children's books catching flack for her public statements at the same time that he is invading a country, destroying its cities and murdering its people. As if the cancellation of Rowling, which, look, in my view, is indeed unfair and bad, is somehow a justification for Russia's violent aggression. To use a metaphor that feels appropriate, this would be like Voldemort complaining about the declining quality of the meals at Hogwarts while sending his army there to kill everyone, as he does in the final book. Indeed, in some sense, the ultimate canceller is Putin himself. He silences his critics, not merely with the kind of informal social stigmatization typically implied by the term cancel culture, but by actively imprisoning and killing them. This irony is not lost on J.K. Rowling, by the way, who clearly wants nothing to do with Putin's hypocritical appeal to her. Quote, critiques of Western cancel culture are possibly not best made by those currently slaughtering civilians for the crime of resistance or who jail and poison their critics, she wrote on Twitter. 
As for the broader embargo of Russian culture now taking place in the West following Putin's invasion, it's perfectly reasonable to point out that canceling Tchaikovsky concerts is foolish and borderline xenophobic. Now, it is xenophobic. In fact, I, I criticized it, as I said, in a previous radar. The West quarrel is with Putin, not with the people of Russia, not with their music, not with their literature, not with their history. We gain nothing by demonizing all Russians. If anything, we give intellectual ammunition to Putin when he invades against the West in his speeches. Now, there's plenty to criticize with respect to how various governments, organizations, and private citizens are cracking down on Russian media outlets, punishing Russian composers, and in general engaging in performative denunciation. Similarly, the public effort to hold Rowling accountable for her views on gender issues has also taken a sinister turn, most notably with the New York Times running a bizarre ad campaign in a Washington, D.C. metro station that asked commuters to envision Harry Potter without its creator. None of those decisions are as morally deficient, however, as Putin's war in Ukraine, nor do they begin to justify his actions. Cancel culture is bad, very bad. Putin is not a victim of it, and widespread destruction and murder are worse. So I, I, everybody's going to be saying, read another book, Ravi. I, I'm I like one of those annoying millennials who is, in fact, obsessed with Harry Potter and loves <laughs> Harry Potter and wants to make everything about Harry Potter. But I did not start this. Vladimir Putin made this all about Harry Potter, which was pretty darkly funny, uh, I thought. Uh, pr pretty wild. The, the overlap between Putin's politics and Robbie's radars. <laughs> it's, it's the horseshoe. You've got national Bolshevism as and the anti-cancel cult, it's just... It's amazing. It's amazing. It's psychedelic. It's like, what on earth is happening here? But this... Uh, and look, I, I think how J.K. Rowling is being treated by many in the media and other people is not great. You know, I, I'm not sure I necessarily agree with all of her views on the transgender community. I might agree with some of them. I, just, I have certainly quarreled with activists on behalf of trans issues before. I know you have as well. Setting all that aside, I love the books, and I, 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 like, I like her for creating them, and I think we should be able to separate these things. That's not something anyone believes in doing. And I found this, this ad on the D.C. Metro. Mm -hmm. I saw it on the Metro. It was weird. It was an ad by the New York Times that was depicting, I think, a, a, a transgender person or a, or a gender-ambiguous person, uh, maybe a non-gendered person. Who, and that person was fantasizing about the world of Harry Potter without J.K. Rowling or something, which is very, like, like actually, to take it back now to Putin, right. that's some kind of Soviet, like, erasing people right. from the photographs Taking kind Trotsky of stuff. Taking right out of yeah. the photo. Yeah. No, that's, and it's also such a weird way of thinking about the world. It's sort of like the parallel would be, like, imagining the ACLU, but it doesn't do the free speech thing. Right. Like, Ugh, like, yeah. But actually, they can go yeah. about and try to make that happen. Unfortunately, we're imagining the future. Of is, the there, I mean, is there like is there is there something is there a culture clash here that Putin is tapping into that like because he is you know extremely homophobic homophobic like the the the, the laws in Russia around you know around LGBT rights are certainly like draconian like centuries old draconian, um, and so you know. It's not. It's not as if Putin is somebody who was like, I was okay with marriage equality and I was okay. Right. But now that it, now that it's gone into, you know, he's not like a principled left teen sports or whatever. Right. Like that's not where that's not where he's like drawing well, the he, line. He's he, like a vicious bigot who is going to launch a war over this. He's just. I think he's just finding. You know, criticize the thing your enemies are doing. That is the easiest to criticize. That is the easiest to make fun of. 
And and this is one of the easiest things to make right. fun of about the West is that we're children's book frequently author, bogged down. Tchaikovsky. Yeah, it's it is dumb, and uh, and it annoys people. Annoys people on our in our country. It's it's something we talk about a lot because it really does animate people. The kind of the cancel culture. People who are for it, people who are against it, people who pretend it doesn't exist. Yeah, it's something we talk about a lot. So I guess it makes sense that Putin would would use that as the well. Yeah, the West is no good. See what they're doing to be and people that actually does animate people. Rally. Point is obviously an easy one to make, but couldn't be more true. Like this right. is a guy who poisons right. and and assassinates journalists, and who just this weekend like shut down two more, uh, two of the remaining kind of remote, you know, somewhat right. free Russian press outlets, and that this is the guy that's going to whine about cancel culture is just a perfect right. kind of metaphor for our entire cancel culture. Debate right. that no, but nobody's on. It's just not on the up and up. We we do have a cancel culture problem. I am concerned uh, about its implications for a, a culture of, of free speech, but it is not as bad as actual authoritarian countries where people are jailed for yeah. expressing dissenting ideas, as they are in Russia, as they are in China, as they are in all sorts of other places. In fact, I would even oppose giving him a platform to make those views there you go make to make those comments if like vassar invited him or whatever i'd say you know what yes de-platform <laughs> this guy until if, he, that, if vassar invited putin to yeah. oh until the war was uh yeah. no i'd say i'd say he should speak at vassar speak at vassar yeah oh boy uh i've been to vassar actually i i uh, attended a, a conference there and uh, vassar is a to make everything about harry potter is a campus that feels like hogwarts, feels like hogwarts. <laughs> it really does uh, all right, enough Harry Potter silliness for now. Can't promise anything in the next segment. It might come back. But our rising panel will join us as well. Stick around. President Biden's approval rating has fallen to its lowest level yet, with only 40% of Americans saying they approve of the president's job performance, a three-point drop since February. That's according to a new NBC poll, which also found that 7 in 10 Americans expressed low confidence in the president's ability to deal with the crisis in Ukraine, while 8 in 10 voiced worry that the war will increase gas prices and possibly involve nuclear weapons. 42% of respondents said they approved of Biden's handling of foreign policy, while only 33% approved of his job performance on the economy. Now, plurality said they blame the president and his policies for rising prices. Just this weekend, President Biden warned of food shortages across the U.S. and Europe as a result of Western sanctions against Russia. Let's watch. With regard to food shortage, yes, we did talk about food shortages. And, uh, and it's going to be real. The, the price of these sanctions is not just imposed upon Russia. It's imposed upon an awful lot of countries as well, including European countries and our country as well. Our rising panel joins us now with their reactions. Julia Manchester is a political reporter for The Hill, and Philip Wegman is a White House reporter for Real Clear Politics. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Good morning. And so, Julia, this is his lowest lowest approval rating in this particular poll. He's been in the 30s and some other polls throughout the past year or so. Uh, what, what's, what's, your, what's your your reaction to this, this latest slump? You know, I think it has to trace back to the economy. We are seeing inflation continue to rise. We are seeing gas prices rise. And it's interesting that after the invasion of Ukraine, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and the White House's reaction to slap on those sanctions against Russia, we saw the White House go on this public relations blitz, essentially calling this 
Putin's price hike. And I think that looking at these polls, it shows that American voters aren't buying that. They recognize that way before this invasion of Ukraine, prices were going up and inflation was a real problem. What's interesting, though, is this poll is coming after a number of polls that were taken after the State of the Union earlier this month that showed Biden getting a bit of a bump, uh, that post-State of the Union bump in the polls. And we've seen actually some other polling that shows that a lot of Americans approve of his decisions to slap sanctions on Russia and Americans are very much appear to be united according to data um, and, you know, getting tough economically on Russia in the wake of the invasion. But I think this polling shows that that's not enough to relieve this slump Biden finds himself in, that it's once again tracing itself back to the economy and Americans, uh, you know, disappointment in how that's being handled. Yeah, I think it's one thing to say that, uh, you know, Americans are, are broadly supportive, or at least they understand the steps the administration is taking with respect to Russia. But that doesn't mean they like Biden any better for it. And, it, you know, Philip, it seems like he, he, his numbers only move generally in one direction. And how, you know, how bad will it be months from now when election time rolls around? Well, there is a little bit of an echo of last summer in the numbers that we're seeing right now. When you see that the majority of Americans, they supported ending the war in Afghanistan, uh, but they also disapproved of the way that the Biden administration removed the United States from that conflict. So while it's certainly possible to see a majority of Americans saying that they stand with Ukraine, that they oppose Russian aggression, in the region uh, that doesn't necessarily translate to those same Americans giving the White House props for how they're dealing um, with, uh, with the war. Uh, obviously, polling is not the most important thing when it comes to a land war in Europe, uh, but I think that that is, um, is one, one factor here. Uh, in terms of, of how far the president can slide, um, I mean, the, the polling that you, you just referenced, that's roughly in line with what we've seen from the Real Clear Politics average for some time now. Um, I think that uh, while a lot of the focus rightfully is on the economy, is on inflation, which is now becoming expected inflation among consumers. Um, I think that if we rewind again back to you know August, September of last year, when we see the bottom fallout for Biden in terms of approval ratings, is uh, during the chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan, and then also uh, when COVID did not sort of take a backseat. I think that it's possible um, that as the pandemic, you know, is in the rearview mirror, uh, that, that maybe that pressure is alleviated. Maybe we see uh, the president's numbers uh, sort of stabilize. But right now, uh, this is certainly, you know, this is the kind of polling landscape that you expect uh, when you're in line for a shellacking in the House. And, and Julia, it felt like under Trump that he had both kind of a, a lower ceiling, but also a higher floor. Like no matter how wonderfully things were going to go, there was he was never going to crack 50 percent. And no matter how badly things were going to go, there was a kind of rock solid floor of support for him that wasn't that wasn't going to evaporate. Democrats feel like there's a different dynamic going on over there. So it feels like Democrats are willing to say, I don't approve of, of the Democratic president's performance. But I wonder, does that translate into anything at the ballot box? Does it translate only to enthusiasm? Or would they vote for the other party? Or do they all just come flocking back when it's like, OK, I don't approve of Biden's performance, but I also think that they're better than the alternative? 
Yeah, right, Ryan. I think it definitely translates into this idea of enthusiasm. I don't think Democrats who are unhappy with Joe Biden right now are necessarily going to be flocking en masse to um, the Republican Party in the midterms. You could see um, some crossover, and we have seen that in past elections, but I don't think it is going to be a tidal wave. But there's a couple of groups that I think we should be aware of, swing groups in particular, uh, that you know could potentially play a deciding role in this election. Um, suburban women, we constantly constantly hear that term. We've heard that term since, you know, the Trump presidency in 2018 when he lost that voting block or the Republicans did. And we saw Democrats get a majority in the House. Biden, um, you know, won that voting block as well in states like Georgia. However, we've also seen Republicans in House races start to win that voting block back, um, you know, not only in 2020, but they're really targeting that group in 2022 as well. That could play a deciding factor. You've also seen some data among Hispanic and black voters. You know, Hispanic voters in general have shown the biggest, I think, swing from Democrats to Republicans in recent years. And we are seeing that Republicans are very much targeting those voters, looking to recruit those uh, those um, voters to run for office or recruit them uh, to vote for the party or volunteer for the party. And you're also seeing that on a smaller scale among black uh, black voters as well. You know, I don't think the black uh, voter can, uh, block is going to swing overwhelmingly for Republicans this election. However, talking to Republican operatives in the party here in Washington, there's definitely um, a movement to start to chip away at that voting block to recruit more black candidates to, to run for office on the Republican ticket, as well as to attract more black voters. So these are all voting groups that could potentially uh, decide the election and their voting groups where Biden's polling has continued to tick down. And, and Philip, is the Republican strategy just to, you know, let that process of Biden losing support continue to play out without adding any sort of complicating factors like here's our actual agenda. Here's what we want. Nope. Just talk about Biden the whole time till it's over with. Talking about Biden until it was over, talking about all the things that Biden is doing to make things worse was sort of the uh, strategy of minority leader Mitch McConnell. We saw that when he said that the Republican Party, they would come out with their own agenda uh, after the fact. And then what happens, lo and behold, um, the National Republican Senatorial Committee chairman, a uh, fellow named Senator Rick Scott, comes out with this 11-point plan uh, for what Republicans can all rally behind. And he sort of gets uh, he gets pillared for it. Um, one of the provisions uh, was that uh, everyone, regardless of income status, should be paying uh, income taxes so that folks could have skin in the game. Um, and, and there were a number of other policy points as well. Uh, but, uh, you know, Scott was was really attacked for that. Um, and it was seen as him stepping out of line. The reason I mentioned that is that here you have an example of someone who is going step by step saying what Republicans should be for, rather than just saying um, that they're going to oppose uh, President Biden at every turn. And uh, that really rankled uh, a lot of folks on the right. It rankled a lot of uh, folks at party headquarters because Republicans feel like they are in such a good position just to say no. And then hopefully the voters will say yes to them at the polls and reward them uh, with majorities in both chambers. That's you know their thinking. And uh, I think that the majority uh, of uh, Republicans at this point are more than happy to just uh, let Biden step in it and uh, hope for the best. Just stay quiet and wash right into the majority.
you know, see if they can pull that off. Philip, uh, Julia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So new emails from Hunter Biden's laptop reveal the first son may have had a hand in gathering investments for a U.S.-backed biolab in Ukraine. We'll discuss the details when rising returns. Last week, the Russian government held a press conference over Hunter Biden's alleged involvement in financing the U.S. bioweapons research program in Ukraine. Western media painted the story as nothing more than Russian propaganda. But now the Daily Mail is confirming that emails from Hunter's laptop actually confirmed that the project was at least partially true. The emails show Hunter helped secure millions of dollars for Metabiota, a DOD contractor that specializes in research on pandemic-causing diseases that could be used as bioweapons. That doesn't sound good. Back in 2014, Metabiota's vice president emailed Hunter describing how they could assert Ukraine's cultural and economic independence from Russia and integration into Western society. After reviewing the emails and defense contract data, the Daily Mail suggests Hunter had a key role in making sure Metabiota was able to conduct its pathogen research just a few hundred miles from the border with Russia. Records show Biden and his business partners, including Devin Archer, invested $500,000 in Metabiota through their own firm and raised several million in funding from investment giants, including Goldman Sachs. House Republicans have vowed to subpoena Hunter Biden over his infamous laptop if they regain control of Congress come midterms. Deputy editor at Newsweek and friend of the show, Baya Unger Sargon, joins us to discuss further. Welcome back, Baya. Thanks for having me. And so what, what was your reaction when you saw uh, <laughs> the, the Daily Mail confirming a bunch of uh, Russian allegations? You know, it'll be very interesting to see if the New York Times issues a correction on a piece they ran just last week, accusing, you know, right-wing commentators and pundits and, and news reporters of parroting, you know, Russian propaganda for saying that this is true, that there is, you know, reason to be concerned about this, that there are questions we should ask. You know, I'll just note that when you talk to Russians right now who are, you know, defending Putin, whatever, who are very much, you know, in the camp, you know, getting Russian disinformation because that's all they get because this state controlled media in Russia, they cannot understand what's happening here. Like they will say to you, so they, they assume that the government is putting anybody in jail who brings up things that are counter to the narrative that's being pushed by the liberal media because it is unthinkable to them the truth, which is that the, nobody's threatening the New York Times reporters with jail in order to silence this counter narrative and silence the truth. They are simply doing it out of their own economic interests. And I think that's really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So we've talked about the, the kind of biolab story. I, I think I, I did a radar on that New York Times story you're talking about. And yeah, I, yeah, I was concerned <laughs> to hear about exactly what they're describing. Seems some of it, some of it was confirmed by our own uh, intelligence uh, officials. And they're saying, yeah, it'd be really scary if Russia cut their hands on this stuff. But no, nothing, nothing to worry about. We're like, what? That doesn't really add up. And now you're throwing in this additional wrinkle. And, like, and it's, you know, it's, it's complicated. I don't know that it's exactly what uh, the Russian propagandists, who are propagandists, are saying. But it's, it's still, it's, it's worrisome. And it, it is not at all in the category of, nope, outrageously false conspiracy theory. Never, you know, pay any more attention to it. And the people saying that are, are the ones who said that about the laptop being Russian disinformation in the first place, which we now know it's not. I mean, we've known it for years that it's not, but now they're admitting what we already knew. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, there's a very much like a nothing to see over here, right? But it's not state actors doing that. It's journalists who are supposed to be independent and yet who there is just this monoculture that is enforced purely voluntarily, right? With no state power behind it. But the enforcement creates a situation where if it wasn't for Fox News, if it wasn't for right-wing commentators, who yes, sometimes go too far, but if it wasn't for them, we would have the equivalent of what they have in Russia because because people are being threatened with jail time for reporting the truth. And I think that that is so crazy. And, and you know, yes, of course, the Russians did not know about this before. This is not the reason they invaded Ukraine. They invaded Ukraine out of, you know, very, very bad motivations that were unjustified completely, right? They did not know about this. But when you have the, the son of, you know, who was then the vice president getting emails from a biolab company saying, we're going to leverage everything we've got in order to help Ukraine pursue its, you know, cultural and economic independence from Russia, right? That that when that comes out after the fact, right, it does seem to confirm the ideas that Russians sometimes have used like after the fact for why they they invaded and it does make their paranoia about our role when it comes to Ukraine vis-a-vis -vis Russia seem less paranoid if I could put it that way. Yeah, and it, and it shows the way that kind of profit-seeking interests are, are able mm -hmm. to use what they understand to be the new kind of geopolitics to their advantage. You, know, you, you, you constantly have businesses who, you know, what, however the news breaks, they're like, oh, let's figure out a way to slide our particular business into this new narrative. And so, you know, post-2014, post that coup there, start thinking, oh, now the U.S. is very interested in making sure that Ukraine is independent you know, culturally, economically, politically of, of Russia completely. So let's say that if they fund our bioweapons or our biodefense labs in Ukraine, that that will actually further the independence of Ukraine. All the while, the things that they're doing end up undermining it because they're raising all sorts okay. of security concerns. So um, w w when, you, when, you, when you think about the way that Ukraine was treated here and you think about the West talking about Ukraine's sovereignty. Do you think that they recognize the gap between the way that they treated Ukraine and the way that they talk about respecting Ukraine's sovereignty? No, of course they don't. You know, I, I forget who said it last week. Somebody made the point that, you know, the Democrats don't really have a foreign policy. They have domestic enemies who certain countries remind them of, right? <laughs> and I think you're really seeing that right now. You know, Putin and Russia, yes, Putin is a thug and a murderer. Yes, this invasion was horrific and disgusting and unjustifiable. At the same time, the level of energy and emotion invested in this to me seems very clearly related to Russia Gate, very clearly related to the fact that Russia became associated with Donald Trump, right? And so he has to now, you know, now it has to be destroyed and punished and humiliated in the same way that Donald Trump had to be and all of his supporters. And I think that your point about sovereignty is so salient, Ryan, because clearly they are undermining the very things that they claim to be supporting, right? That they claim to be, you know, defending, right? Free press, being undermined at every turn, sovereignty being undermined for corporate interests at every turn, right? So I, I totally agree with you. And former President Trump actually weighed in on the news during a rally over the weekend saying, quote, failing New York Times finally admitted that Hunter Biden's laptop was real. Remember when they said it was done by Russia? 
It's not just Trump who finds the story relevant. Two-thirds of Americans say Hunter Biden's laptop is a very important story, while 15% of those polled say it's not important at all, according to a new survey from the New York Post. Bacha, you recently wrote a piece for the Daily Mail blasting the initial censorship surrounding Hunter's laptop, which you boil down to being about class, citing the shift in working-class voters that were flocking to Trump in response to COVID lockdowns. Can you elaborate on that for us? Yeah, absolutely. I do have to say, I wish that, you know, places like the New York Post and the Daily Mail did not make us look at pictures of Hunter Biden in his underwear literally every time we need to talk about this very important yeah. issue. A- a- apologies <laughs> for yeah having that on screen. Totally Tr- not your Trigger fault. warning next time. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, the argument I was making was that, you know, we, we tend to think about tech censorship as a right versus left issue to where, you know, um, conservatives are censored um, and big tech has taken aside with liberals, that is certainly the case. But it is even more the case that because the liberals are increasingly affiliated with highly educated college voters um, in urban areas, and the conservatives and Republicans are increasingly affiliated with the working class, what this amounts to is a censorship of working class values. And, you know, the COVID um, lockdown policy, we've talked about this here many times, and you guys have talked about this at great length, was very much a way of sort of benefiting economic elites and punishing the working class. And many working class Americans of all races, particularly Latinos, gave that as the reason that they were turning, shifting towards Trump, because they liked that his emphasis in dealing with COVID was very much on keeping the economy going and keeping the economy going for the working class. You don't have to believe that Trump cared about them to see that it was the case that they very much, the working class very much saw him as on their side in the economic fight of, of COVID, which is was, was a lot of it. And so in censoring the Hunter Biden laptop story, it comes back to what I was saying earlier, Nobody told, you know, the vast majority of of liberal, all liberal media outlets to treat that as Russian disinformation. They did that out of a sense of their own economic agenda because these places are staffed by, you know, rich, overeducated urban liberals who were making, you know, their economic interests are very much on the side of the lockdowns, as are their bosses, their rich corporate bosses. Yeah, yeah. Great points, Bacha. We thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Coming up, the debate over trans athletes continues to heat up, and we'll hear both sides of the argument next. So veteran Fox News anchor Chris Wallace left that network after 18 years on the job, and he says life at Fox had become unsustainable for him. Quote, I'm fine with opinion, conservative opinion, liberal opinion, but when people start to question the truth, who won the 2020 election, was January 6th an insurrection, I found that unsustainable. That's what he said in this New York Times uh, interview. (laughs) By the way, uh, the 2020 election was not stolen. Not stolen, right? We have to... Just, just to make sure everybody knows that, because elected president. we wouldn't want to uh, inflame any mega tech companies <laughs> on which this show appears. So everybody, everybody got it. We're all good now. We got it. Let's go. go Biden ahead. president, legitimately. I think we did it. Got it. Okay, good enough. All right. So Chris Wallace will start a new show on CNN's streaming channel that is expected to go beyond just politics. All right, here to discuss Bayou Unger Sargon, a deputy editor at Newsweek and the author of Bad News. Welcome, Bayou. Thanks for having me. And so what's what's your what's your take on this? 
You know, I would love to see people, uh, you know, quitting their jobs from CNN and the New York Times over the ethical issues there, over having gotten so much wrong about COVID, over the, you know, the just total destruction of America's small businesses, over, you know, the learning loss of Black and Hispanic children due to errors that were promulgated, you know, by, by those outlets. I just think that this is so... But to, to hang your hat on this, to take an issue of, you know, dressing up something that is actually um, just a difference of opinion, and then leave Fox, which is uh, the number one show viewed by Democrats, by the way, for CNN, plagued by scandal, plagued by actual, you know, journalistic ethical violations. To me, I just see this as, um, you know, really not worth them, not really worthy of respect. What do you guys think? But so difference of opinion implies that it's a genuinely held opinion. And I, and I think that we have a ton of evidence from text messages from Sean Hannity and, and that whole coterie of, of Fox News hosts that they actually knew and understood that th that a January 6th was awful for their entire movement. Like we have that. And also that they understood that the election was clean. Like they, you, we have those text messages. Was it was it Hannity who was sent, texting to Mark Meadows or whoever else? Like, please tell him to stop talking about the election. Like it's over. It's done. He lost. Get somebody get through to him. So they all. So it's not a difference of opinion in that sense. They they all really knew that the election was fair. Well, and that those messages suggested those people knew that it was not Antifa, it was not Democrats, right. it was not the deep state, but it was their own supporters doing that stuff on January 6th, which, which then the subsequent... Whereas I wonder when it comes show. to the pandemic stuff that you're talking about, I, I would bet that Sanjay Gupta and the others at CNN and MSNBC, if you, if you catch them in private text messages and in private conversations, they're probably saying the same things. Like they believed in the lockdowns, they believed in you know, the, the, the general well, kind I don't of know democratic about, uh, response. Oh, and now you're losing me, right? Well, we'll okay. let Bache. Yeah, Bache, what, what do you think? <laughs> and maybe well, there's some I, I mean, variation uh, among the crew. So I watched Fox News all throughout January 6th, and they, they all condemned it. I mean, everybody who was sending Trump text messages then went on that night to say that it was a horrible thing to have witnessed and a horrible thing to have happened. Um, the things that um, later came out, so he specifically mentioned Tucker Carlson's uh, special on Fox Nation, Patriot Purge, as the reason, you know, for leaving that he sort of, that was sort of seems like it was the, the straw that broke the camel's back. I mean, that um, episode... Uh, it, it was, what did he do in the show? I mean, he didn't say it hadn't happened. He pointed out to evidence that I think a lot of us would like to know more about, about the level of the um, FBI's uh, I I involvement in January 6th. That's not to say that, you know, 700 people didn't commit crimes for which they've all been prosecuted, but that is a legitimate question, don't you think, to ask? I mean, that that's, don't, you don't think that's a legitimate question to pose? Well, as I've said, it goes all the way to the top. It, it was entirely January 6th fomented by actually by the government, by President Trump, the president, <laughs> the person like, yes, it was engineered by the government. It was engineered by the sitting president. Mystery, yeah. Case closed. Mystery solved. Got him. He would have gotten away with it, too, if not. For yeah. Me. But uh, so so I, I think um, I, I can understand uh, Chris Wallace wanting to get out of that environment. The part of it where I, I think I would agree with you or what I, I think you're saying is that, but then to slot himself into CNN as if there are no flaws in the reporting there, uh, 
doesn't make a lot of sense to me, especially given, and, you know, he, he kind of talks about it in this interview, he, there's a line where he expresses uh, fr- polite frustration, he's a polite guy, about the state of CNN right now with, uh, with uh, Zucker having to leave, but slotting himself into this network where there are these, these very lo- looming large ethical questions about how the Cuomo stuff was handled. Uh, I, I think that is where the, there's, there's hypocrisy and then some. Yeah. I mean, you know, the head of the network at CNN was making, you know, back channel deals with Andrew Cuomo, who was in the process of overseeing, you know, the death of 20,000 defenseless seniors, right? And and undergoing all of this um, sexual harassment stuff, which, you know, we've talked about that as well. But, you know, just the handshake agreements, the the coziness between the network and the politicians that they were supposed to be objectively reporting on, that's not a problem for Chris Wallace because it's the right politicians, right? Because it's the right side. I guess that's the point I'm trying to make. Um, you know, and as for the, the nighttime shows, I think that, you know, as we've, you know, discussed in earlier segments today, there's a lot of stuff that is being asked on nighttime shows at Fox News that is actually turns out to later be true and relevant. That is just there's a total taboo on covering it on the liberal side of things because of where our domestic politics are at. Do they get everything right? No. Is our job as reporters to be open and to question things and to question everything? Yes. And essentially, he has chosen a side based on politics that is not does not have its hands any cleaners, I guess the point I'm trying to make. Yeah. And by, I think if I were going to make a version of your point, I'd go to, to Russiagate and to the and to the coverage yeah. of the Steele dossier. You know, CNN and, and MSNBC in particular, the way that they the way that they covered that, it was cl- it was clear that this was unsubstantiated that these were unsubstantiated allegations. Like, nope, nobody disputed the, that fact. Like, and you could look into the dossier and you could see, you know, basic mistakes that were apparent, that, you know, it was, it was, it was contradictory on its face at times. And so all you had at that point was a, basically a document like a, that was put together by a private investigator making allegations. And both of those outlets just ran wild with those allegations, occasionally caveating them as just allegations, but often just saying no, like that, often taking them as as fact and then and then connecting the dots very much like a Glenn Beck from you know the the 2010s with his with his board and like the Soros and the SEIU and like you know he's and Acorn and he's you know figuring it all out for everybody that that so that I I think it's fair to say that jumping from you know, you know, one you know cons- conspiracy world into another uh, is you know le- leaves you without a whole lot of room to complain. And it's also it's not just about what they covered, but what they didn't, right? I mean, by not covering the Hunter Biden laptop story, by you know this just you know liberal media, big tech, and and the and the Democrats all colluding together to completely silence that story so that, you know, Americans, two thirds of whom today say that is actually a big deal and a big story. They didn't get to hear about it. Um, I mean, that was a really big deal that was deeply unethical and not a single person has taken responsibility for those decisions and said, look, here's where we got this wrong and here's how we're going to do better. They just changed the subject like they do with COVID, right, when they get something wrong. And I I think that, you know, addressing Chris Wall's dressing this up as some sort of ethical decision. I just think that that's really cynical and and difficult to to agree with and just to believe. Yeah, and, and the Hunter Biden uh, laptop is another instance where you had, you know, pretty soon after it came out, there was there was plenty of internal evidence within it that it was authentic, that 
because you had there was no evidence that it wasn't authentic to begin with because they didn't even deny they, they didn't never deny it. They never it. said it was. They right, there was deny it once. It was nuts. <laughs> there was that plus his plus his business partner uh, also gave access to emails to the daily, to mm. the Daily Caller and those emails corroborated and backed up what was right. what was in some of these laptop emails. Plus you had Bob Alinsky, who was you know showing his emails like here I'm. I knew it was going to be real because what what are they saying there was going to be a fake laptop repairman like <laughs> that, there's that a part person I'm, that part i'm still like laptop repairman uh, he keeps leaving laptops in yeah. repair shops all around the country like I, a, I, like I, a moron i was very i was instantly ready to believe that he had lost a laptop could he have left it at a repair shop sure unless it was maybe. like james o'keefe in disguise or something <laughs> comes in with like a little mustache you're like oh james o'keefe laptop repairman right. services then i'm in like okay but but could somebody steal it from him while he's like on a bender yeah. yeah. Anyway, Bacha, thank you uh, so much for your take on this subject. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. We'll have more rising right after this. Debate over sports and gender identity has been brewing for some time, and it intensified last week at the NCAA National Swimming Championship, where Leah Thomas made history by becoming the first openly transgender woman to win an NCAA swimming championship title in the 500-yard freestyle race. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis added to the controversy surrounding trans athletes when he outright refused to acknowledge Thomas Wynn and instead hailed Sunshine State native Emma Wittant, who came in second in the race. He tweeted this, By allowing men to compete in women's sports, the NCAA is destroying opportunities for women, making a mockery of its championships, and perpetuating a fraud. In Florida, we reject these lies and recognize Sarasota's Emma Wyatt as the best women's swimmer in the 500-yard freestyle. This comes, of course, on the heels of another controversial Florida thing, the Don't Say Gay Bill, and we'll get more into that with our guest today. Joining us now to discuss is Natalie Dowzicki, Deputy Managing Editor at Reason Magazine, where I'm also employed. Nice to see you, Natalie. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. So you wrote about the Leah Thomas win uh, for us at Reason, uh, and, you, and you have uh, credibility here because you are, I believe, a college swimmer. So tell us a little bit, you know, what your reaction to, to this win was. You know, I know from reading your piece, you know, you're, you're tremendously sympathetic, obviously, to the transgender community, and it's important to, you know, show them respect and support and humanity and compassion, but... The domain of women's sports is, is, is a different thing, or it does invite, you know, hard questions and it, that, that take a, some nuance to discuss. Yeah, of course. And so I swam for 19 years of my life. Like, by the time you get to be a college swimmer, you're, most of those girls start at age four or five. And I think the, the big controversy here is that there's a difference between there being fairness in sports and letting people like live their free and authentic lives. I believe that Leah Thomas should embrace her true self and be authentic, but at the same time, it shouldn't come at a cost to um, everyone else that are trying to en- embrace the competitive spirit of, of women's sports. And I think that that interesting tension there has really uh, put women swimming on a very large platform this season for a sport that that's normally not really uh, talked about other than during the period during the Olympics. And so there's been this interesting camp of people that are 
for women's empowerment and interested in making sure that women have a space to compete on a level playing field. And this, um, especially in swimming this season, um, we've seen a lot of people come out and say that they're they're comp they don't feel like it's compet or they don't feel like the competitive integrity is being kept in women's sports if um, transgender women like Leah Thomas are allowed to compete. Um, which has caused obviously a, a big controversy and there's all kinds of arguments floating around because yes, she did win the 500 yard freestyle at the NCAAs. Um, just to put that in, in context, the division one NCAAs for women's swimming about 1.8% of women swimmers actually make that meet qualify for the meet out of right. 15,000. And when she was, when Leah Thomas was competing as a male, she did not qualify for that same meet that she, um, as a male. Mm. And then she came and obviously won the 500 yard freestyle. She did not beat Katie Ledecky's times, but Katie Ledecky is a once in a generation athlete, uh, similar to Michael Phelps. And it's very difficult for me when I see arguments that say, well, she's not as fast as the fastest swimmer to me that, that, that's not a great argument. Uh, she can be, mm. she can be, she won or she got eighth in other events. Uh, but I think com trying to compare her and saying it is fair because she's not as fast as an Olympian who we have, n who is like blowing things out of the water is just not an, a credible argument in my opinion. Yeah, Natalie, I'm with you. I also was a college swimmer. I swam all the way through. You know, I, I coached swim team. I taught swim lessons to kids. I lifeguarded for years and years. So I'm big in this world as well. So I, I, I agree with you. I do not think Leah Thomas should be competing in the women's section uh, against, especially since Leah Thomas competed as a male for three years prior to joining the women's swim team. And I know how it, you know, you and I both know being in that water. It, it, you can't compete against the guys. There's a reason why women and men are separated. But I am also very sympathetic to Leah Thomas and her, her, her desire to, to, to compete, to be in sports. I don't want to take that away from anyone. You and I both know that that is when you're when you, when you swim for four hours a day from the time you're a child, right? You know, especially high school, once you get to that point and you're swimming two hours in the morning, two hours after school, and you've been doing this and the only thing you know is being in the water, I understand not wanting to give that up. So where would you think Leah could compete? Yeah, see, that it's a it's a complicated question because I, I do think this is the first time we're seeing an instance like this where um, a transgender woman is is so competitive. Um, and I think, you know, the best solution right now is to have not just in women's swimming, but in all all female sports, there needs to be a governing body with a set of rules that it's willing to stick by in order to have um, transgender athletes compete. The big problem here was that the NCAA did not follow the USA swimming rules that came out in February. So had this meet been the Olympic trials, Leah Thomas would not have competed because she she did not pass mm. USA swimming's um, rules of needing uh, to have hormone replacement therapy for three years with a testosterone level under five nanomoles per liter. And the reasoning the NCAA said they didn't follow USA Swimming rules was because they didn't think it was fair to, uh, to follow new rules just a month out from the competition. 
Uh, to me, it's not fair to everyone else, the hundreds of other swimmers that are there to not follow those rules. Um, and USA Swimming is the dominating governing body in, in this sport. Um, they follow all of the um, like all of your big meets, the Olympic trials, the Olympics are all going to uh, come down to USA swimming rules. So I do think there, there needs to be governing bodies that have rules that they stick to. Um, and that's that's the first step in ha trying to get towards a fair a fair spot for everyone to compete. And and so two questions. What, what do you think would be uh, fair rules? And can you also talk about a, a little specifically about you know, why it is that Leah Thomas had such an advantage despite she went through, I think, one year of uh, hormone replacement uh, treatment. And so you'll see a lot of people respond and say, hey, you know, she went through this, so it is, it is now therefore fair. So what's, what's the counter argument? What's the biology behind that? It didn't make her shrink, yeah. right? I mean, how tall right. is, how right. tall is she? Right. How long is that yeah. wingspan she's got? I mean, and also it, you can't negate the fact that for the previous 18 years or however long Leah Thomas has been swimming, she's had a greater lung capacity, a larger heart um, ability to like our larger muscles. That stuff doesn't go away overnight. Um, and the NCAA rules up that they followed for, for this meet were that she had to do hormone replacement therapy for at least a year. She started her transition in May of 2019, though didn't start, um, did not start hormone replacement therapy right away. Um, and the, I mean, the biggest thing here, yes, there are swimmers who are, especially female swimmers who are tall and have large muscles and, you know, ha have higher testosterone levels than the average woman. Um, we're all born with unique talents. Um, to me, this this scenario and what makes Leah Thomas better is that, you know, she was born with, you know, the the male advantages that don't disappear through um, and this quickly. Also, we just don't have great studies on this type of like hormone replacement therapy and how it actually affects and changes your lungs, your muscle capacity, like and all of those things. And I think until we do, it's going to be hard to determine what's actually fair. Um, now, USA Swimming has uh, came out with that three-year three-year period because they they used to study. I believe it was it, it was a foreign study. I can't I can't remember exactly from what country um, that determined that bringing down your testosterone levels to five nanomoles per liter um, was acceptable and fair to um, other women in competition. Now the average male has between 10 and 30 nanomoles per liter of testosterone. So a, a great deal less than, um, than the average male, but I still don't see exactly how that changes all your other physical attributes. I mean, it, this, uh, we were talking about it at, at, um, at work and it, this would be like, if, LeBron James wouldn't suddenly become six foot one if he decided that he wanted to uh, change his gender and go play in the WNBA instead. Um, so I think some of those things just like you can't change. You, you're biologically created that way and you can't change them. As, what, what was your experience as, and I'm curious, both of you, um, as, as college swimmers, if you would have had to try to compete uh, against, I, I assume you're often in the pool with other you know, the boys in high school, men in, in college. Yeah. Like how, how big of a gap was there? Um, I believe I believe the good stat was for every, um, I believe for Leah Thomas's swim, so her 500 freestyle win, um, there were 3,000 men at the NCAAs who could have gone faster. 
um, or who did go faster. Um, and I think that's kind of a good point. Yes, she was is a very fast female, and we have some female Olympians that can compete with men. Um, but for the most part, men are like far, far ahead in terms of women in, in swimming. And I mean, you can just see it if you look at Michael Phelps times and you compare them to like our the greatest female Olympians. It's just your height and your wingspan and the proportions of your body make a huge difference in, in, in racing sports, swimming, running, um, all, all those types of sports. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, women, it, it's it's tough to compete. And we even see this in not even just swimming. We see this in every sport, uh, most sports. I mean, there are some women, there are some sports, but most sports, we see this with men and women competing, even tennis players. For example, you take the best tennis player in the world, female Serena Williams, computer, uh, put her up against a, a variety of men. And it's a tough, you know, that are that are also professional. It's a tough, it's tough. So this is why we separate sports between men and women. We separate it so that there is fair competition for women and fair competition for men, but mostly fair t competition for women. It's so that women can compete with one another and have achievements. And though I am very sympathetic to Leah Thomas as well, I think there is we absolutely have to have some sort of separation there. And, you know, and, and it's a tough decision. I'm sure for Leah, this this could have been possibly one of those tough decisions where they could have said to her, look, um, you can transition. That is absolutely your choice. You're free to do that. And everyone will support you in doing that. But in doing that, you give up things. By the way, like every woman who has to give up things for just being a woman, you know, we yeah. <laughs> and so you have to give well, up some welcome things. Welcome to womanhood. <laughs> right. Welcome. <laughs> and, you know, this might be one of those things that unfortunately you have to give up. So you have to make a choice. You could stick around for a while and continue to compete on the men's team and then transition after. Or you could transition now and you're going to have to give this up. Yeah. That sucks, but that's life. We don't get to have our cake and eat it too all the time. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I do think I do think the bigger story here that was kind of kind of missed. Yes, Ron DeSantis got involved because, of course, a Florida native got second. So then that was his like way to put in his two cents. But to me, the sad the sadder story of this is the girl, the swimmer who got seventeenth. So the top yeah. sixteen make finals. Um, and usually you so much faster in finals and it's like a big celebration. Um, and that's when they do the award podiums and all that stuff. Um, the girl who got 17th, she was a Virginia tech swimmer by the name of Rika George. Um, she, what well, she had made finals the previous years in NCAAs and she, I believe it was her last year of college swimming. So she penned a letter to the NCAA discussing how she felt like shortchanged and that it wasn't fair and that I, I understand uh, and that she said she was understanding what was going on with Leah Thomas was sympathetic, but just wasn't fair to fair to competition mm -hmm. in the competitive spirit. Right. Yeah. And I think that was kind of that letter was overshadowed partially because the NCAA didn't want anyone speaking out. Um, and a lot of teams were encouraging their swimmers to not say anything. Um, and I think. Yes, it, it's very hard for Emma, who got se who got second, but she was also she was also an Olympian. Um, so I do think the sadder story is definitely the mm. the girl that got seventeenth instead because she was fourth. knocked one, out, one, right? Fourth one, or seventeenth, yeah. you know, all, all of that. Yeah. One super quick story about how like how this stuff sticks with you. So I played college tennis. I had a good good career in D three, but the thing that sticks with me so much is in my senior year of high school, I didn't make the the state tournament. And there were some politics and some shenanigans involved. I was actually in a fight during a match. And, then, and the, the coach of the team that, where I got in a fight kind of basically you know, screwed me in the tournaments that I couldn't make it into the state tournament. And to this day, 
I'm in my 40s now, and I still am annoyed <laughs> that I didn't get to play in that in that state tournament. Ryan, when you throw punches on the court, you end up disqualified. You know what? That's fair enough. It, it was it's fair enough. Like like we were saying earlier, there's no excuse for violence. Although yep. right. we promised there would be no a, violence on this show today, yeah, and was, so far it was not a sucker punch. Yeah. So this isn't the Oscars. Right, <laughs> Natalie. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Yep. And we'll have more rising after this. All right, Kim, what's on your radar? All right, well, I wasn't sure if I was going to talk about it, but here it is. Over the past few days, I've been the target of a conservative cancel culture and have been smeared as a child porn apologist, which is wildly inaccurate and shocking. Though conservatives often side with us on big tech censorship and cancel culture, they are not immune from engaging in it themselves at times. So let me tell you what happened, but we have to start with a little backstory. Book banning is on the rise. In 2021, there was a 64% increase in requests to ban books from school libraries. Experts who monitor censorship say they haven't seen this many attempts to ban books in decades. Conservative parents across the country are outraged over some of the available reading material for checkout by kids and teens. Now, much of it is the type of stuff you'd expect to cause outrage. Books that are anti-God, books including witchcraft, profanity, alcohol use, drug use, violence, and of course, homosexuality. The recent uptick started as moral alarm over gender identity and worries that kids will get confused if they read books that claim there are more than two genders. This has expanded into outrage over books depicting gay teen love stories and has now even encompassed books involving straight teens engaging in sexual activities. Now, I've looked into several of the books, including Gender Queer, a book about a person coming out as not only bisexual, but also non-binary, Two Boys Kissing, about two teen boys trying to break the world record for the longest kiss, as well as other banned books such as It's Perfectly Normal, Changing Bodies, Growing Up, Sex, and Sexual Health. Now, some of the content is shocking. I'm not going to lie. I get why the knee-jerk reaction to these books is to prevent teams from reading them. This uptick in censorship isn't to be confused with the outrage parents are expressing over topics being taught as curriculum in the classroom. We've seen many parents upset over critical race theory or gender identity being included in their child's coursework. I think parents have a right to know and help shape what their kids are learning in schools. I agree with parents on this issue and share in some of the outrage. What kids are taught might look different in various regions of the country. That's the beauty of being in America. We get to choose to live in areas that align with our particular values. But we're talking specifically about access to information in school libraries and the desire for many parents to ban books from them being available. Their kids are not likely to read the books they're advocating to be banned because they've likely banned their own kids from reading these books. So unless they don't trust their own children to follow their guidance, they're actually advocating for your kids to not have access to these books, whether you think it's okay or not. But here's where it gets inflamed and intense. People looking to ban books do not say, these books don't align with my values and that's why I want them banned. That's not a strong enough argument, especially when the same crowd is often outspoken against big tech censorship. One can't say they're against censorship online because all ideas, no matter how abhorrent, should be heard, then turn around with a list of books they want banned from school libraries because the ideas are abhorrent to them. So instead, the argument being used is that the books contain child pornography and that they must be banned in order to protect our children. This is a highly charged argument that pits anyone who doesn't agree as an immoral enemy who is a predator themselves. That's what I experienced. It's similar to when the left says, if you don't agree with XYZ, then you must be a racist. 
No one wants to be labeled a racist or a child porn apologist, so it silences the debate. But let's be clear, child pornography exists and we should do everything we can to protect children from exploitation, harm, and abuse. I think everyone on both sides of this debate is in agreement with this and we shouldn't lose sight of this common goal. I myself was a spokesperson and activist for years for an organization called Stop Child Trafficking Now. I've heard some of the worst, most egregious stories of abuse and have been sounding the alarm about its pervasiveness on, on U.S. soil happening in our own backyards. And we should do everything we can to prevent children from being exploited. We're all on the same page. But that being said, words printed in a book are just ideas, stories, and information. Actual people or animals were not harmed in the making of said books. It's just paper and ink. We've heard time and time again from people on the left that words are violence and words are harmful. I don't agree. I understand that some people, including children and teens, may get wrong ideas after watching certain content on YouTube, listening to certain music, playing certain video games, or reading certain books. We've heard these arguments over the years, but I believe the best way to combat bad information is good information. And the best way to keep your kids from being abused or abusing others is a stable family life. We know the statistics, and kids who are most likely the victims of sexual exploitation come from unstable home environments, most often poverty, and often the perpetrator is another juvenile who also comes from an unstable home. Of course, any child in any environment of any socioeconomic class can be abused by anyone. It sadly happens all the time. But I never hear the experts say the impetus for the abuse was overconsumption, or any consumption for that matter, of young adult novels that include sex scenes. There isn't solid evidence showing kids learning about sex leads them to engaging in it or even abusing others. If a teen ends up pregnant, I'm not sure it can be blamed on a book. That being said, I'm not discounting that there's a legitimate concern about some of the ideas placed in our teens' heads. Being a teen sucks, and it's a time in life when people often hate the world around them, stop confiding in their parents, and tend towards experimentation. So I get it. Parents are worried their kids are going to experiment with gender identity, amongst other things they hear about. This is a normal concern. Parents are worried their kids' phases won't fade away. I at one point cut my hair off, bleached it white, got a nose piercing, and told everyone to spell my name KYM. Older generations blamed it on too much MTV. But it was a phase. Gender identity is not always a phase. But if your child is going through questioning who they are, this is a normal part of teen life. But the best way to combat any child making devastating life changes, reeling into drug addiction or consequential experimentation with whatever it may be, is something the left tends to discredit which is a stable home life. Now, parents need to take responsibility for the parenting of their children rather than blame YouTube or books or video games. Children will be exposed to everything and anything sooner or later, and parenting is about navigating their minds and emotions through difficult and complex information. Rather than shelter them when they encounter something difficult, have a conversation with them. Talk to your kids about complex topics in terms you know, you, you know as their parent that they can understand. Rather than tell all parents, they must parent the way you see fit, allow parents the right to parent how they see best fit as well. So last week I appeared on the Glenn Beck podcast. I flew out to Dallas and I sat down with him in person. Though Glenn and I come from different sides of the aisle, we have a lot in common. Though we disagree on some things, we agree on others and had a really nice productive conversation. That episode is available up on his YouTube channel. But after my appearance on Glenn's show, I was asked to be a guest on another show on the Blaze TV network. It was a panel discussion where we discussed the banning of these sorts of teen novels in schools. I said, I don't think words written on a page should be banned. And I also said, I don't have a problem with children learning about sex, even from a young age. Obviously, the discussions would have to be age appropriate for younger kids. Most of the books in question, young children can't read, even if they were put in front of them. 
They don't have the skill set yet. So it's totally disingenuous to be upset over very young children of elementary school age having access to these books when these young kids are literally reading at a Dr. Seuss level. That is if Dr. Seuss hasn't been banned from their school yet. So when I say young kids learning about sex, I mean not lying to them about how babies are made and not lying when they ask other questions. If they're old enough to ask the question, they're old enough to get an honest answer. But that's my opinion. However, on the show, I was only given two minutes to quickly say something about this. I wasn't given any real length of time to flesh out anything of substance. Afterwards, the host went to Twitter to express her shock at having me on her show and called me a child porn apologist and vowed to never have me back. This was after telling me before we went on air that all ideas were welcome. I should have realized that when the show began advocating for the banning of books that perhaps that wasn't an accurate description. In an ideal world, we can discuss and disagree on what materials and ideas we think appropriate for children without devolving into calling each other the most abhorrent of names. The fact is, kids live in a harsh world with nearly everything avail available to them over the internet. They will see and hear much worse stuff than what they can read in a book. But as far as books in school libraries go, I believe that if the book resonates with teens, it should be available to them in school libraries, whether certain parents are upset over it or not. What's immoral to one isn't to another. And what's shocking to one teen is just life to another. Libraries shouldn't be arbitrators of morality. They should be warehouses of information. It should be up to the parents to then decide if the book is appropriate for their teens based on their own morals. But look, this isn't a subject we're gonna solve in this radar. It's a difficult and nuanced discussion and it's changing constantly as new information and technology is being put in front of us and our youth. But we should be able to have differences and opinions and discuss these complex topics without them devolving into slurs and cancel culture. Now I know, Ryan, you're the parent out of the three of us. People would you know, criticize me after this and said, oh, Kim, you're not, I'm trying to have a child. It's unfair to say to me, I don't have one yet. I, I'm, I think I will have one hopefully soon. And when I do, this is the type of parenting I personally believe in. I don't think I'm gonna shelter my kid really from anything when they come across really questionable, harsh. I mean, gosh, you know, you take your kids walking around the strip in Vegas, they're gonna see some stuff, right? I think the idea that the danger zone for kids today is the, is the school library it's just so wildly, absurdly out of touch with the current world that we live in. Like, there it's amazing are, we still have libraries, right? Like their faces it, are glued to their yeah, phones the, and their iPads. Yeah, when my kids even find the library, like if they picked up a book in a library, like, that they weren't ordered to pick up by the librarian. Amazing, thank you. The the risks are on the platforms that we're on: YouTube, uh, TikTok. Uh, Instagram, the rest of the, that's like, that's, that's where the real parenting has to come in because the platforms have, you know, basically seeded all of that. Uh, so the school, like, I mean, come on. It's like being on Chincoteague Island and watching wild horses everywhere and then finding a barn door open somewhere yeah. and be like, oh, that'll do it. Let's close that barn door. And I mean, and it's you like could no. put all the parental controls on anything. And, and I would absolutely try my good. best. Like, those, right? those actually those actually do right. work to, to a significant extent, and those should sure. until stay on. Your kid, yeah. until they go to their friend's house, right? Absolutely, and yeah. And then right. their friend doesn't have those controls, mm -hmm. and so they're Or until they figure out how to take them off. Well, aren't you, right. you know, exactly. when, when they're trying to, when, when schools and to some, some extent, you know, political government figures and legislation, they're trying so hard to ban something, I, I, I think at some point they're like, 
adding to the allure of the forbidden. Like, oh yeah, kids can't see this. It's so dangerous. And like, don't, don't dare. Isn't that going to make them curious? I and what tell it them is? the library is super dangerous. Don't go in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't yeah. go in Tell the Republicans don't want you setting foot in that <laughs> library. Right. And they're like, oh, what's going on there? So yeah, no, I agree with everything you had to say, Kim. And, and the, the key is parental choice, right? I want to empower families and individual parents to make choices that are right for their kids. And the choice that they would make might not be the one I would make or you would make. And it might be that their choice is valid for them and my choice is valid for me and my family. Like people, different people can be different and we can try to, we should try to have this choice making at the family level as much as possible without, you know, giving, you know, one person veto power over what everyone else is allowed to read is ridiculous. It, it does. Did, yeah. Yeah. No, Kim, ahead, I, your point does put the lie to the whole parents decide thing. Like what they mean by parents decide is a very particular set of parents get to decide for everybody rather than the yeah. current system that we have where people run for election and we democratically elect somebody and then those people make decisions on behalf of the entire community. They're like, no, no, we don't want that. We want parents to decide. Well, the parents voted, so why wasn't that parents deciding? Yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah. You want very pre these parents, you right. want them to decide right. and you want them to decide for everybody. Got it. And you know, their, their defense on this, what they say back to me is, no, Kim, they, this is a school library. So 100% of the patrons of this library are under the age of 18. They're, they're young adults. And so Therefore, this should be a curated set of books. And I totally agree. You know, I, I don't want like Hustler magazine. People kept saying, oh, so Kim <laughs> thinks it's fine to have Hustler magazine in a school library, which is totally, a, you know, trying to straw man and, and disingenuous to my argument. Um, but the fact is, is that, uh, you know, there, there are some materials for, for teens. Like, like I mentioned, some teens go through things in life that are very harsh, that, and that's their reality. And they're looking for mm -hmm. something to connect to, right? And and then they get that out of a book and they say, I'm not alone. There's this story of this teen who experienced it. You know, there's a lot of books out there that are being banned that are that deal with very tough subjects such as race, uh, rape and incest and other things. And, you know, I, I just don't think that there's any. So, so people say, well, Kim, you, they could find that in a public library, just not in a school library if parents want to expose their kids to that. A lot of these kids don't have parents that would show them those public libraries. That's why they're seeking out books that would give them some sort of I'm not alone feeling. I don't know. I, you know, I, I just yeah. don't think we should be sending There's just, there's just such a huge difference between, you know, teachers training or instructing very young kids in anti-racist training or you right. know, introducing them to debatable theories about gender, which, okay, yeah, I don't want that either. That and, you know, like a sixth or seventh or eighth grader, you know, who might have their own issue, you know, encountering some narrative story in the library that might speak to whatever they're going through. Like, we're going to ban that? It's just ridiculous. And, and that yeah, I, difference, right. I think, is so important. But this, this, so many of these legislative efforts end up, you know, criminalizing both. So is that Robbie? I, I don't spend enough time. On, you know, this was a shocking thing for me to realize. I stepped in cow manure on this. <laughs> like when I started this topic, I was like, wow, I didn't realize like this is a charged topic for people on the right. Um, did this come from the whole like alarm over gender identity? And that the, I mean, that's what I'm getting is that this was a this is kind of spread from that. It started. Yeah. Yes and, and it, no. There, there was also the moral panic in the 80s around the satanic rituals and abuse. Right, but this is but the, the recent stuff. But it's a wave that. of it. It, yeah. It, yeah. it comes in waves. But this wave. Yeah. And there's the cue. The well, and they'll, right, they'll say, the, the right says, and look, I agree with this. Don't sexualize children. That is an important goal. Right, but of course. That's, but like you said, we, 
that can't just mean we have to tell everyone that like the stork delivers babies until they turn 19, <laughs> right? What? Tell I'm just that learning about this yeah. now. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> the uh, yeah. The don't, don't yeah. say must say stork bill. Yeah. Thank wow. you. Oh, K- thank you, KYM. That was <laughs> yes. <laughs> very much appreciated that. I know more, you guys want to see uh, pictures of that, right? You want to see pictures oh, of the abs- chopped absolutely. off bleached hair, like nose it. piercing. Picks or it didn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> All right, more rising after this. Copies of text messages obtained by The Washington Post and CBS News late last week revealed that in the weeks after Election Day in 2020, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas's wife, Virginia Thomas, doggedly pressured the Trump White House to overturn what she called the greatest heist of our history. A total of 29 messages were exchanged from Election Day to January 10th between Virginia Thomas and then White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. They show a harrowing, uh, what? Haranguing. How do you say that word? Haranguing. Okay. Haranguing. <laughs> All right. They show a haranguing Thomas being intimately involved with Trump's inner circle as they devise a legal strategy to challenge the legitimate election results. Text records suggest Thomas had additional personal contact with Trump's son-in-law and advisor Jared Kushner and his lawyer, Sidney Powell. On November 10th, three-day, most major news outlets declared President Biden the winner. Virginia Thomas wrote, help this great president stand firm. You are the leader with him who is standing for America's constitutional governance at the precipice. In another text on November 19th, Thomas wrote, release the Kraken and save us from the left, taking down, taking America down. The, uh, the, the terrific random capitalizations yes. are that make you know <laughs> that this is sincere, yeah. uh, sincere kind of uh, kookery. In February 2021, Justice Clarence Thomas prominently referenced voter fraud in his dissent from the Supreme Court's decision to deny a GOP challenge to Pennsylvania's treatment of mail-in ballots. Then in January 2022, Justice Thomas was the only dissenting opinion on a Supreme Court ruling denying former presidents former President Trump's request to block the release of White House records concerning the January 6th Capitol attack. We should say that the election was not stolen, just in case. I don't know if we missed it in there somewhere. Got to say that. Got to get that out of the way. Jenny Thomas wrong. Was not a Jenny Thomas wrong. We're just reporting on her. We don't share her views. I think (laughs) think her views are wrong. That's been a problem in the past, so we're just... Can we just have that flash on the screen while we're... Okay. Uh, you can tell how much we, we like doing that little disclaimer. What's funny is that there were people at the beginning of this segment who heard, who heard those texts from Ginny Thomas and were like, oh, wait, there was a heist? <laughs> right, right. The election was stolen. What? But then you clarified it. Then I clarified it. So they, and they might, <laughs> right. might have been confused about what I thought about it. Right. So now I, I let them know. Yeah. Um, right, so back. I don't know. What do you guys uh, make of this? Uh, so so I, I, I think, you know, Ginny deserves plenty of criticism, I suppose, just like other people who've made these claims. But I, I don't really, like, Clarence Thomas is not responsible for like what his wife's views are to me. Right. And, and so I, I'm not, there's right now this like kind of attempt to associate him with this that feels very unfair to me. Yeah, I mean, look, my fiance and I are not politically aligned. Uh, yeah. We have different political views. I think that's pretty normal. A lot of, a lot of marriages, the people are, they don't share the same politics. Uh, And also on top of that, I don't think Clarence Thomas's vote is up for grabs. Right. I mean, it would be one thing if he was like a swing vote, like, uh, you know, like Roberts or something. But he is firmly conservative. You can always count on his vote towards the conservative for the most part. So, you know, is this a scandal? I I don't personally think so. I think uh, and it's funny how liberals 
so quickly can move to process complaints. Uh, and in this case, by blowing past the underlying scandal to get to the process conflict of interest issue, they miss the, the part that Clarence Thomas was ready to overturn the election, like the only dissent in that Pennsylvania case. And you, you, you have practically an insurrectionist on the Supreme Court. Who cares what his wife thinks? Look, look at what he thinks. And what he thinks was written down in the dissent. Well, and to and, that and point, he, Ryan, if he if he tried to say that stuff on YouTube, he'd be banned. Right, and and to that point, uh, you know, as but I that mentioned, make it, that doesn't make no, it wrong. Okay. Well, well, Maybe that's not the best. No, no, yeah, but, actually, never mind. But, I take that. Back. But also, but you know, people can have. He, I think Ter- Clarence Thomas is probably a pretty bright guy, and as I mentioned, couples often yeah. are not politically aligned, but oftentimes couples are very politically mm-hmm. aligned. So maybe he married her because he agrees yeah. with her on most things politically, and this is actually his genuine viewpoint. I don't think the guy's an idiot. Right. So if I he think, thinks right. that, that's his own thinking, not his right. wife influenced right. him. Do we think he's that kind of a mind? He's that weak that right. his wife right. and would that's the problem him? that that it is his thinking. This is like that would be more of the story to your point, Ryan. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's more of the story than his on, wife. Yeah. So on March 14th, Ginny uh, Thomas hit back at claims of impropriety in her work, telling the Washington Free Beacon, quote, like so many married couples share many of the same ideals, principles and aspirations for America. But we have our own separate careers and our own ideas and opinions, too. Clarence doesn't discuss his work with me and I don't involve him. In my work, unquote. I, I think okay, I think the enough. only, if I'm to you know take the, the, there's something off about this. It's just that to to be a Supreme Court justice and have your spouse so involved in political activism, period. Forget about what it is about. It is sort of an odd situation in that it even if it's there's nothing yeah. improper about it, it, it makes it look like you're possibly connected to or could be persuaded by activism kind of going against the supreme court's image as like so above the fray or so beyond the fray so you know not involved in the normal political process i think that's what right. because so, there's no other person right there's no other person on the supreme court who has a spouse who is who is so actively involved in political organizing? Yeah, but that's her choice. I mean, I'm not going to take yeah. a choice away from a woman that happens to be married to a powerful man, you know, and then say to her, right. "Well, because you're married to a power, you have to stand there, sta- you know, by his side and be help meet." You know, like what in the world? Well, no, I She's agree. But to- like, for instance, I think we all thought that uh, uh, Chris Cuomo shouldn't be a CNN anchor because his brother is governor of New York, well, right? No, he it, even have- if. He shouldn't have had his brother on the show. That's right. different. Right? I don't think he like, should have been an anchor at all. I don't, I don't know how you can have fairly cover the news when your brother's the governor of the state. No, I like. I, I, don't, I think I don't, these conflicts of interest far. come about when you have when you you have a political figures and then people very close to them in in the media or other political roles. It, it creates those headaches. But right, the, the legitimacy of the court is basically entirely manufactured by our culture. Like there's no yeah. like as was it Jackson who said maybe apocryphally they've made the ruling now let them enforce it yeah like they don't have an army they have a uh, according to that that nutcase during RussiaGate they have a, a marshal who's going to go arrest everybody uh, but but other than that their rulings rely on public yeah. trust in their rulings which which is why particularly in the judicial arena it's not just a conflict of interest but it's the appearance of a conflict of interest right. that causes 
Uh, wasn't concern. it? Uh, wasn't it Andrew Jackson who said the Supreme Court has made their ruling? Yeah. Now let them enforce it. Right. He was just not yeah. going to enforce their uh, ruling well, on. I think yep. it was a Native American issue. Yep. Exactly. Ginny yeah. Thomas has no power. She's just an activist. It's not like she's sitting in a position where she can actually make a decision. She can't. Her husband can, but right. she's just out there being right. loud but, and proud about her viewpoints. Yeah. The, the but point, te- yeah. I mean, but texting high-ranking Trump officials about them. I don't know. It's. I'm not saying. I don't think she's actually having an influence on her husband beyond what he already thinks, it just kind of looks weird. That's all. Yeah, and if and that's all the court it has weird. is looks. Yeah. Huh. Uh, anyway, but good. It exposes the, the rot and the corruption at the heart of the Supreme Court. Delegitimizing that, but... it is a good thing. Yeah, so we're all on, I, don't know I, I don't agree with that at all. We're all on different <laughs> sides of this one. I don't agree with that. Okay, tomorrow on Rising, we'll have another great show for you. Rachel Bovard and Jennifer Holdsworth Karp will be here for our Rising panel. And as some of you may know, it's Kim's birthday today. <gasps> Here's a little video from the crew. Happy birthday, Kim. Hey, Steve, stand by to fade up. Hang on. Hey, Steve, you jumped your cue, damn it. Man, stand by. Steve, stand by on Kim's birthday greeting in three, two, one. Steve, hit the cue. Happy birthday, Kim. Happy birthday, Kim. <laughs> Happy birthday, Kim. Hope you have a good one. Take it easy. He's waiting for our chess game. It's your move. I'm not letting you win just because it's your birthday, Kim. Happy birthday, Kim. Oh, thank you, my tinfoil hat. Kim, I just want to wish you a really happy birthday, and I hope that you uh, turn up. Get it? Oh, my gosh. Wow. These are getting intense. Um, yeah, really? <laughs> Turn up. I, I think I regret sharing when my birthday is. <laughs> don't need to do anything for me. August or something. August right? 8. Right. August 8888. Yeah, getting his vacation can't now. <laughs> Darn it. Uh, can't forget Robbie's birthday is the easiest one to remember. But Maybe YouTube you were, will shut us down. You were by sick. <laughs> we you hope. were out for your birthday, so we didn't get to do anything for your birthday. Right. I had you, COVID. <laughs> yeah, you had COVID for your birthday. That's right. For my 40th birthday, I had COVID and I was stuck in lockdown. So I live streamed a birthday Sad. party. Yeah. Sad. That's. Well. Thank you, guys. That was really fun. That was really nice. I am uh, 22 years old today, as oh. you could tell. How <laughs> Again, nice. Whole life ahead seconds. of you. Yes. For yes. the 20th You're time. 22. Ryan's 75. <laughs> we, we have a, our audience has a very good sense of the host ages. So yes, that's important. That's <laughs> All right. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. See you tomorrow.